You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. A Slack vulnerability is discussed and fixed, and this is not as seen on TV. A real NCIS investigation is likely to occupy real JAGs for some time to come, with implications for military and civilian cyber law. The U.S. is moving rapidly on Huawei and its associated companies. It's now much harder for U.S. companies to do business with them, and there's likely to be fallout in other countries as well. And an exposed database affords an instructive case of responsible disclosure. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, May 17, 2019. Tenable this morning reported a vulnerability in the business cooperation tool Slack. The flaw is now fixed, as it had been earlier disclosed to Slack. It affected the Slack desktop application for Windows, version 3.3.7. It has been fixed in version 3.4. It had been possible for an attacker to send a malicious hyperlink via a Slack message. Once clicked, the link would change the document download location path to a file share the attacker owned. This could have enabled theft or manipulation of other documents subsequently downloaded within Slack. As noted, the problem has been fixed, so users would be wise to update to the latest version. There's no indication that the vulnerability was ever exploited in the wild. The U.S. Navy may have put trackers in emails destined for defense counsel and news media covering a military trial involving leaks, Military Times reports. The Naval Criminal Investigative Service is investigating media leaks surrounding a high-profile case in which a Navy special operator is charged with murder and a Navy officer is charged with conduct unbecoming an officer in an associated case. The Navy judge presiding over the case had imposed a gag order to help ensure fair due process for the defendant, and NCIS was trying to find who was violating that order. In any event, the Navy judge advocate prosecuting the case sent emails to, among others, defense counsel with a tracking image embedded below the signature block. A Navy Times editor was among those who received the email with the tracker. It was designed to identify the recipient machine's IP address and report it to a server in San Diego. It normally requires a subpoena or court order to acquire IP addresses or other metadata, Military Times says. Military Times is a sister publication to Navy Times, both papers belonging to the Sightline Media Group. A Navy spokesman told Military Times that this is about the defendants, 
Senior Chief Edward Gallagher and Lieutenant Jacob Portier, quote, receiving a fair trial with due process in the military justice system, end quote. The spokesman, Captain Greg Hicks, declined to comment specifically on the tracking code, but said, quote, following continuing and ongoing violations of the Federal Protective Order, NCIS initiated a separate investigation into violations of that protective order. That investigation is ongoing, end quote. Captain Hicks did not say whether the Navy obtained a search warrant or subpoena in connection with the emails. He did say that, quote, the media was not and is not the focus of the investigation. The focus of the investigation is squarely on identifying unauthorized disclosures that violate the judge's protective order. An NCIS spokesman said that, quote, during the course of the leak investigation, NCIS used an audit capability that ensures the integrity of protected documents. It is not malware, not a virus, and does not reside on computer systems. There is no risk that systems are corrupted or compromised, end quote. This, of course, satisfies no one who was troubled by the telltale code. Military Times points out that maybe this is a violation of existing privacy laws, including the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, and defense counsel have complained about the potential for abuse. The law here may be unsettled, but several state bar associations are on record against the use of such tracking technology. This sort of investigation, by the way, for those of you who watch NCIS on TV, is actually a lot more typical of the cases NCIS works on than the harem-scarum stuff you see on the small screen. Wednesday's U.S. executive order on securing the information and communications technology and services supply chain declared a state of emergency under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, the National Emergencies Act, and Section 301 of Title III, United States Code. The executive order directs the Secretary of Commerce to take the lead in minimizing the risk from companies controlled by foreign adversaries, read China. Its immediate effect is to clamp down on the use of Huawei technology in the U.S. The U.S. Commerce Department immediately banned Huawei and 70 of the company's partners, The measure will also affect U.S. exports. Broadcom, Qualcomm, Intel, and Oracle, among others, will henceforth find it difficult to sell to Huawei, the Wall Street Journal points out. Strictly speaking, Commerce placed the Chinese company and its partners on an entity list. Doing business with them will require a special license. The entity list applies to both imports and exports. China's government has called the executive order and its attendant enforcement actions a wrong course and promises to resolutely defend Chinese companies from Washington's depredations. Beijing sees the affair as a move in a trade war. U.S. allies may be nudged by both prudential policy and the Vosner arrangement to follow suit. Vosner is an arms export control regime whose 42 signatories undertake to cooperate on restricting trade in not only conventional weapons, but dual-use articles that have both military and civilian uses. Cyber tools are among the dual-use items the arrangement addresses. U.S. allies are also concerned that giving Huawei too large a share in their national infrastructure could inhibit intelligence sharing with the United States. Of the Five Eyes nations, the U.S. and Australia take the hardest line on the risks posed by Huawei products and services, The other three eyes, Canada, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom, are uneasy about the Chinese company, but more ambivalent than the Australians and Americans. France's President Emmanuel Macron's reaction to the U.S. executive order is representative of that in other allied countries. 
It's not France's perspective to move against Huawei or any other company, but France is determined to take measures to secure itself. That said, President Macron suggested that a trade war was in no one's interest. So why do companies and governments do business with Huawei? The company's gear is good enough, and besides, it's generally the low-cost option. It's so low-cost, in fact, that a number of Huawei skeptics consider the pricing unsustainable, a low-ball campaign for market penetration that will change once the customers are locked in. Ever taken an online survey, maybe to enter a sweepstakes for prizes? Sure you have. Most of us have. Of course, such surveys and sweepstakes are marketing instruments, and a large Elasticsearch database containing such information as name, physical address, email address, IP address, phone number, date of birth, and gender was found exposed online by independent researcher Sanyam Jain. Jain, who Bleeping Computer says is affiliated with the GDI Foundation, tracked the data back to marketing firm Path Evolution, a subsidiary of iFishient. He disclosed the exposure to the company, which promptly secured the data. iFishient has pointed out that the data didn't include social security numbers, credit card numbers, or passport numbers, so they fell short of the fulls, so beloved, of hacker black marketeers, and short of the kind of personal information covered by various U.S. state laws. But it's still an embarrassing lapse, and iFishient is both shoring up its security and notifying people affected by the disclosure. But iFishion's response to Jayin's disclosure was, Jayin said, refreshing. They thanked him and took action. All too often, the response to this kind of disclosure, he suggested to Bleeping Computer, is to be either ignored or threatened with legal action. So, an unfortunate lapse, but a nice tale of responsible disclosure, responsibly received. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business.
And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, it's great to have you back. It's good to be back, Dave. Uh, We had a report come by. This is from a company uh, called Apricorn, Mm -hmm. and they manufacture hardware-encrypted USB data storage devices. Correct. Uh, and uh, they came up with a report. They did a survey right. of uh, over 300 people across a bunch of different different industries examining ways that they use USB devices. Correct. So, so trying to sort of take a look at what are people doing right and what are people doing wrong, right. and uh, what did they find here? They found that 91% of the respondents claimed that encrypted USB drives were important, Yeah. right? But only 58% said that they regularly use encrypted USB devices. Hmm. So that's interesting. Yeah. Well, let's just walk back a little bit here. When we're talking about an encrypted USB drive, what's the practical uh, implications of that? I'm not exactly sure how the product that Apricorn sells works, but presumably it's a hardware-level encryption so that everything on the the device is encrypted uh, and that if you don't have the keys to get into that device, then you're never going to open it. Right. right, so if I lose this drive so, in the yeah. parking lot or something, right. somebody who picks it up, it's going to be worthless to them. It's going to be worthless to them, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. There, there's other ways you can do it. Um, I think SanDisk has a product that's similar that, that runs software that encrypts, encrypts the drive. Mm. Um, and then, of course, there's the free solution. Uh, you could use Veracrypt, which is an open source encryption product that lets you create volumes, uh, encrypted volumes, or encrypt entire volumes like a USB drive. That's actually the solution I use to keep my important stuff encrypted on my USB drives. Yeah. And I, I use it by creating a volume, right, an encrypted volume that takes up a certain portion of the drive. The reason I do that is because I still need to have these drives available for unencrypted usage. I mean, encryption is not always uh, important. For example, if I'm going to give a presentation to somebody, right, I'm, I'm going to give a presentation to a group of people, and I have that presentation on a USB drive, Right? I'm going to show everybody in the room and, and show everybody in the world what this presentation is if they, if they wanted to watch it. Right. Um, so I really don't care if this, if this information is discovered, but I do need a way to quickly and easily put it on somebody else's computer without having to worry about do they have the Veracrypt uh, software installed hmm. or do they have the SanDisk software installed. Right. Um, or, or even just have the key or the password. Right. Or do I have might, the keys or the password. Might right? not I want to reveal. Yeah. plug it in, copy my presentation over, and deliver my presentation. Mm-hmm. So, I mean – Again, we have to we have to decide what's information we want to protect and what's information we don't want to protect. Now, obviously, there's lots of information we want to protect. And if that information needs to be protected, then when it's on a USB device that's considered data at rest, right, yeah. we should definitely be encrypting that information yeah. through some means. Yeah, and, and this whole notion of, of kind of the you know USB device uh, promiscuity, you know, mm-hmm. of going right. from one computer to the other, yep. uh, I, I think about public health and... Uh, on the one hand, uh, you know, there's there's washing your hands, and on the other hand, there's uh, inoculation. Right. You know, I, and it seems to me like you should try to try to be protecting your devices from both ends. You Correct. know, informing your users not to just plug these things in and in and out willy nilly. Right. But also have whatever mechanisms that are on the machine that might get plugged into. To whenever something gets plugged in, to take a look at that, and before you go off and load something or run something. You know, have some kind of software on there to take a look at whatever might be on there and scan to see if there might be any problems. Yeah, absolutely. And, and additionally, there are other things out there 
malicious hardware is just a bank of capacitors that stores up all the power that gets sent to the USB drive over time right. and then feeds it back all at once in an attempt to burn out the motherboard. It just zaps it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so th- don't ever plug anything you find in. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying those those devices are rare. Those motherboard destroyers are yeah. rare. Uh, and they're not kind of costly, but better safe than sorry. better safe than sorry. Yeah. Your, your your bigger risk here is is finding malware or getting malware on something. And I don't I don't like the idea of using the free free devices at conferences. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've even gone so far as to hand them out uh, at a conference, but <laughs> because your boss told you you had to. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just a piece of swag that we had. But I, before right, we right. did that, I actually had uh, one of my students go through in, on a Raspberry Pi and and delete everything off those things because we you know where do you get those things they come from some marketing supplier right you don't know what the supply chain on that marketing supplier is they're they're buying those devices from the lowest bidder yeah right yeah so we ran a uh, a complete wipe on everything before we handed it out huh uh, and we don't hand them out anymore just yeah because we just don't think it's good <laughs> practice to hand them out right right all right well uh, this company Apricorn who makes these uh, obviously they have a little bit of uh, interest in uh, in making people want to use encrypted USB drives which so. is not a bad idea not a bad idea but uh you know just be mindful it's not a completely uh, unbiased uh, look at this right, so, right, right. Uh, all right well joe kerrigan thanks for joining us it's my pleasure dave are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program with the largest network of trust centers Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Mike Kajeski. He's CEO and founder of MedCrypt, a company that helps medical device manufacturers improve their cybersecurity. Our conversation centers on the current security state of medical devices, steps that producers of those devices are taking to better secure them, and how appropriate regulation may take a part in moving things forward. The majority of medical devices that are being used today were designed without really any thought about cybersecurity uh, when the devices were developed. And there could be a couple of reasons for that. It could be that device vendors were assuming that these devices were being used on a hospital network, and the hospital network was inherently secure, and therefore the devices themselves didn't need to have these security features. Um, or it could be that the device vendors just didn't think that uh, you know security was an issue. Who's ever going to hack a medical device? You know, is this a sort of an apocalyptic scenario that is reserved for you know terrorist movies, um, or is this that you know actually a real a, a real practical concern? And I think going forward, there are challenges when designing a medical device in uh, prioritizing uh, clinical features over. Uh, cybersecurity features. So, for example, you know, the the number one priority of a pacemaker is that it always continues to keep the the patient's heart uh, beating. And when you're designing a pacemaker, that's obviously the most important thing that you need to be designing into the device. Well, how how many clinical features can an engineering team, uh, you know, put off uh, to, to the future in return for implementing some security features to ensure that that device is, is, uh, you know, functioning safely. 
And designing security features into devices, as you can imagine, can be pretty tricky and pretty time consuming. So there's this constant battle between you know, clinical functionality, uh, interoperability, ease of use for, for clinicians, and actually building security features into these things so that you know, bad guys can't do bad things with them. Yeah, you know, one of my colleagues here, Joe Kerrigan, uh, works at Johns Hopkins, and he was saying that, you know, someone comes into the emergency room there, and they're not going to say, hey, my first priority is that you secure my private information. You know, I need you to, you know, take care of uh, this chest pain that I'm having or, or get these bullets out of me. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and I think, you know, maybe even a less... Uh dramatic illustration of that issue is that the classic problem in healthcare of who is the user, who's the customer, who's the buyer. Um, when you have a cardiologist who's put, you know, choosing a pacemaker for a patient, the cybersecurity features are probably relatively low on their list, right? Um, that pacemaker is not going to function on the hospital's network. So the hospital IT department is that concerned about it. Uh, the insurance company doesn't really have any incentive to minimize the security risk in the pacemaker. Uh, and the the medical device vendor, uh, you know, they're they're just trying to build clinical functions to differentiate their device from the competitors. So you end up with a device that is in, you know, a, a patient's chest that goes home with them that perhaps has some security features, and then you have a you know a nightmare scenario where the FDA has to uh, mandate a recall on a device because they've decided that the you know, a security vulnerability found in that device is is not acceptable. I mean, do you think there's a, a regulatory solution here? I mean, certainly when when I think of the medical uh, industry, I think of things like HIPAA, where uh, you know big changes can happen. They can come down from on high. Is that one possibility? You know, it, it's a it's a really good question. And I, but before starting this company, um, you know, considered myself to be a you know very free market, uh, somewhat libertarian leaning individual who, who was very skeptical of the government's ability to have a positive impact on, you know, on something in the market. Um, but, but having worked pretty closely alongside the FDA and looking at this problem, I, I found that number one, that there, that there might not be another organization uh, that has the leverage necessary to fix this problem. It, it, might, it might need to come from the FDA. And the things that the FDA has done in the last four years to attempt to improve medical device cybersecurity, I think have been very measured uh, sort of, you know, responsible interventions and not the kind of heavy handed anti-business, uh, you know, legislation that that some people would would have you believe that the FDA is, you know, is in the business of doing. One hmm. example of this, they they've come out with two guidance documents related to what they call post-market cybersecurity and pre-market cybersecurity in medical devices. Um, and as a guidance document, the first page of, of each of these documents says, these are non-binding recommendations from the FDA. So lots of medical device vendors said, oh, well, these are optional because it's guidance. We don't really need to do this. And the FDA has come out and said, uh, no, that is, that is not true. Safety in medical devices is mandatory. Cybersecurity is an aspect of safety. Here is our recommendation of how to build safe medical devices. If you do it some other way, that's fine, but it needs to be better than this. And people have asked them, why don't you just pass a law? Why don't you create some regulation that actually, you know, mandates that device vendors do this? And the FDA has said, well, the pace of cybersecurity moves so quickly that if we were to make a regulation, the regulation would be, you know, five years, if not 10 years behind what the current state of cybersecurity is. You know, if we say, hey, you have to use encryption on medical devices. Well, what kind of encryption? What's the key length? What algorithms are okay? It kind of becomes a, a rat's nest of questions that need to be answered that lead to this sort of heavy-handed regulation that, that ends up being sort of anti-business. So I think the FDA has done a great job of addressing the problem. 
you know, especially this most recent guidance they put out last October. So one thing that comes up regularly when writing these sorts of stories are the nightmare scenarios of, you know, the Homeland episode where the vice president's pacemaker gets hacked. And it's, it's pretty easy to point the finger at device vendors that have been in the news recently for having cybersecurity vulnerabilities in their devices. But what I will say is that, number one, the clinical functionality of a medical device, basically any medical device, almost always outweighs the cybersecurity risk of that device. So, for example, um, I think Medtronic had an issue with uh, pacemakers last fall where a vulnerability was found. Does that mean that if your, you know, your parent or your grandparent has a pacemaker in their chest, they should go get it removed? Because no, absolutely not, right? The, the, the <laughs> clinical functionality of these devices are, are orders of magnitude more beneficial than the cybersecurity risks are detrimental. And I, I do think that, you know, from working with a lot of these bigger medical device vendors pretty closely, they're doing a great job of changing their practices and building features into the, into devices. And some of them have been doing this for, you know, cl close to a decade and have done a pretty good job at it. So it's, you know, the sky is not falling. This isn't a nightmare scenario. Uh, device vendors, I don't think, are being negligent by putting devices out there that, that lack security features. I, I think it's more of a, an, an industry problem where, as we discussed, the incentives maybe aren't perfectly aligned to result in you know, really well-secured devices. Um, and the FDA has, has, has been the organization that I think has done the best job of, of changing that dynamic. That's Mike Kajeski from MedCrypt. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bonn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.